Hi, and welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, where caregivers and survivors have honest discussions about stroke. We are a part of Stroke Focus Podcasts. This is Cam, your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hand in Hand Show. This is Cam. We're here today with Bob Mandel. He suffered a massive stroke decades ago. Bob's dedication to helping others stricken by stroke has led to a new career path as an author, stroke coach, speaker, and founder of the Stroke Recovery Foundation, whose mission is to improve post-stroke lifestyles through education, awareness, activism, advocacy, and knowledgeable resource navigation. In his prior life, he was a corporate marketing executive, partner in an international management consulting firm, an adjunct professor at Fairfield University, and an entrepreneur in the telecommunications field. He earned his MS in business from Penn State and his BBA from Pace University in New York. So I'd like to uh, bring in Bob, and let's start talking. Thank you very much. Thanks for that lovely introduction. When did you have your stroke? I had my stroke in 1996, so I guess it's about 23 years ago, January of 1996, on a dark, dank Connecticut winter day. Tell us what happened. I had a terrible headache. Never had a headache like that. So I called my uh, physician, my internist, and, you know, I told him that could he get me in that afternoon. So he he was nice enough to get me in as his last last patient around 5 o'clock, 5.30. And he thought I had, uh, you know, some signs of possible flu or something like that. He gave me a few prescriptions and sent me on my way. And so when I got back home to uh, Richfield, Connecticut, which is in Fairfield County, I uncharacteristically uh, went to bed. Normally I cook dinner. So I went to bed, and I was probably in bed about a half hour, and suddenly I felt something snap in my brain. And the only thing I could think of is that it was a stroke. So I, I paralysis set in immediately, but I rolled over in bed on the unaffected side. I called 911, and I said, I think I'm having a stroke, but, you know, the house is all locked up, so don't come. And they didn't come. They listened to me. We lived in a triplex. I rolled out of bed, rolled over to the stairs. I thought I would get down one level. Thought I'd go down on my rear end. I knew I couldn't walk. Instead, I rolled down the flight of stairs, passed out on the living room floor. My wife, when she got home, our garage was underneath the house. So when the garage door went open, opened up, I, uh, I, could, I heard her, woke me up, called down uh, that I was having a stroke. Uh, she came running up, called 911. I said, oh, you're home, Mrs. Mandel. Then I lost my ability to speak, passed out again, and the next time I kind of remember anything is a couple days later in the hospital. I was hiccuping for 10 days in a row, and I slept most of the time when I was there. How long were you in the hospital? I was in the hospital for about 10 days, and then they shipped me off to a nursing home that had a rehab wing. And I was in the nursing home for about uh, three and a half months. I had therapy four to five hours a day, six days a week, every kind of therapy possible. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, at, it's in the nursing home that I kind of realized that I couldn't speak. 
because a speech pathologist came to my bed and asked me to, to say three words, and I couldn't say them. And it sounds crazy almost to think that I didn't realize I could speak, couldn't speak. But I was so sick and so tired from the hiccuping that I just didn't realize it. But that day I realized that I was in trouble. That's interesting that you say that, especially right after the stroke. We don't always make the best decisions, and we don't always realize what our real deficits are at the time. Absolutely You said that because that's important for people to know who are going through this, that at least I did. I didn't make the most rational decisions. I made the most, what I thought was the most rational decision. At the time. But unfortunately... When I look back on it, they weren't good decisions. Right, you didn't realize the implications. Exactly. I think that's really important that you said that. I didn't realize how long it would take me to get better. And I'm still trying to do that, get better. But, I mean, get to a a better level, certainly, than I was at the time. I didn't realize. I thought a year, no problem, I'll I'll be back. So we don't realize, and nobody really tells us. Nobody said You'll be okay after six months, or you'll be okay after a year. I just assumed it. Sure. Well, I was told that you had about a year. That's about it. After that, whatever you had recovered in the year you would have, you would sort of hit a a blind wall or something. Right. I figured a year was no problem because, you know, it was a year. It seemed like a long time, 12 months, you know. Right. I'm still recovering. You're still doing some recovery. I mean, it doesn't stop because if you do stop, you go backwards. Backwards, correct. So tell us a little bit. It's very important to mention that, that when a person stops, they actually go backwards rather than plateauing and staying at the level that they're at. And I've never, never really focused on that concept, but it's true, and it's also worth saying to people. Yes, you know, it is true, and it doesn't hurt to occasionally go back to therapy. Right now I'm looking at going back to therapy because my right arm, I'm starting to have some problems with more weakness again and fatigue in the arm and things like that. And I don't know why because it's not like I don't use it. It's my affected arm, and, you know, I'm not doing something right, or maybe I'm doing it right. I just need more. I know that I went back to therapy another time for balance and and walking issues and, you know, did better after that again. So maybe sometimes we just... No, you should. I'm always doing therapy. I'm always, almost always doing some kind of therapy. So it it is important to keep working. Or another way to say that is to keep moving. moving. It doesn't have to necessarily be exercise. It doesn't have to be anything strenuous or anything, but go take up archery if it'll move your arm backwards or shoot a gun if it will, you know, that balance thing or, you know, so it doesn't necessarily have to be therapy, but find things that will work for you. Tell us a little bit what you did before your stroke. When I got out of Penn State, I was in an entrepreneurial department at Corning Glass, and I was there a couple of years, and then I... um, moved down to the New York area and I joined Sylvania Electric, the TV and lighting company at the time. And I uh, was there for eight or nine years. Then I joined a uh, 
consulting firm uh, as an associate, I think is what they called me. I did a lot of litigation support, expert witness type work, and marketing planning type. Then I got involved in the entrepreneurial world. I started a nanny placement service, uh, live-in nannies. We brought them from uh, the Midwest and the West and the South and into the New York, greater New York area for one or two year stints helping uh, families, particularly two-income families, uh, with their children. And then we got involved in a telemarketing company. I was a year into that when I had my stroke. So that uh, cut me down. My working, um, although I did start working again once um, I got out of the nursing home, and a very limited amount because I was doing so much therapy, four to five hours a day, five days a week, mm-hmm. outpatient therapy. And um, we moved down to Florida, um, I guess, about 18 years ago. And um, I had I had over two years of therapy in Connecticut. And then I kind of doubt or, you know, I plateaued, but also I got fed up doing over therapy, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But when we moved to Florida, I thought vitamin D and vitamin C and the sun and all that stuff, and I hadn't done anything for a while. So I started up again. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be in a center that I, a, a young graduate from University of Florida physical therapy program, uh, and she was watching me work out or work, do, do the exercises and things, and she came running over the table and said, you got to get involved with Brain Rehab Research Center up in Gainesville, Florida, a, a joint venture between uh, the Veterans Administration and the University of Florida Medical School. It's a grant. I don't mean it to sound negative, but that's what they do. They get grants. They, they do clinical research, basically academic clinical research. Right. So they, they screened me, and they jo- I joined the program. I spent the better part of the summer there, and I did a whole bunch of therapies. Uh, uh, I did locomotion. Um, equi- uh, locomo- I don't know if you know what a locomotion equipment is. It's uh, if you remember what Christopher Reeves was doing after he had his, his spinal accident on a horse, they had him in a treadmill hanging over, or in, on a treadmill, but hanging over to, in, a, in like a harness. That's locomotion. Mm-hmm. I did that. I did constraint therapy when I was still in the uh, clinical stage. A bunch of, uh, I worked with a bunch of PhDs who needed somebody to work with, a guinea pig, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, you know, I help people. I was up there. You know, I, I did what I could do. I, I made some gains. I tell people or suggest to people that uh, clinical research and participation is another avenue to recovery. Right. Uh, right? So, um, I mean, it's a little difficult if you don't live near a, a large uh, university or um, medical, com- medical company. Mm-hmm. But um, it's certainly worth exploring in my estimation. Right. I totally agree about the research. I've been in several research studies, and I'm fortunate here in the St. Louis area to be near Washington University. University, Yeah, a couple of others and some big hospitals where they do some research also. So I've been able to be involved in several research studies. And, you know, the ones that I've been involved in, it's free therapy. Exactly. That's what I say to people. Free medicine. You know? yeah. 
and sometimes they pay you, and sometimes they offer transportation. Right. Um, you, you just you never know. Now sometimes it's like twenty dollars for right. it's not a lot. It's not work. A lot. Yeah, it's not a lot, but you know you're still getting this free service, right. and you're helping other stroke survivors or brain injury right. survivors in the right. end. So yes, I definitely recommend that if you can. You go on to university sites or even different large medical centers right. and see if they have any. Anything that might be appropriate. There are some databases also. That yeah, and I think I used one of those one time to go look around, but I found it too uh, difficult for me to read all the stuff and figure well, that, out where it was. You know, that, that is a problem with accessing all this kind of stuff is uh, clinician terms at the Typical lay, educated lay person doesn't really understand the terms. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. So I wrote a book a couple of years ago called uh, Stroke Victor, How to Go from Stroke Victim to Stroke Victor. It is a how-to book it's written in English. When I say English, in non-clinician terms. You know, most of the stroke books that are out there are either clinical nature or they are memoirs um, of somebody's experience and how they recovered. But my publisher, well, I found a publisher, and um, he said to me, Bob, look, you're not Bill Clinton, so I'm not, if it's a memoir, I'm not, I'm not going to print it. You know, he said, maybe your family will buy it, but no one's So anyway, uh, but it's a how-to book. It describes to some extent how the things I did and also things that I learned writing the book, which maybe I didn't do, but that I learned. And from writing the book, I came to realize how underserved the field of stroke was. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I would try and change that. So I started, initially I started the Stroke Research Foundation because it's, I just felt there wasn't enough research in stroke, and I had data to show it appropriate to the problem, to the size of the problem and the, and the implications for long-term disability. But then I changed it to uh, Stroke Recovery Foundation. People thought I was the, either well, I wasn't. A, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a doctor, and, and I'm not a bank. So that's why the stroke research thing kind of didn't work. But mm -hmm. the Stroke Recovery Foundation, we help people get better. We try and educate people. We coach people. Down here, uh, we help people find appropriate resources, neural-based resources to get better. We do some advocacy. You know, I work with some colleges with the uh, students who are physical therapy and occupational therapy students. I give them what amounts to realism. You know, they work with mannequins. So I'm there talking about, you know, the implications of a stroke and how do you treat a stroke. And then I was up last week, and, you know, none of the students had ever felt what tone is like, right, tone in your arm. And they're all, so they lined up to feel my arm, you know. It, you know, it sounds trite, but truthfully, you know, right. they never experienced it. And that's, you know, because they no one had done that. Plus, I, you know, I told them my story and kind of mm -hmm. the stuff that we're talking about here. And uh, and then I started talking about some little strategies and things that I use for one thing or another. But, uh, well, until these 
students interact with stroke survivors, they don't get it. And they probably still will never get it because they haven't exactly been through it. But the more information they can get from you or me or, or anyone else is going to help them in their yeah, in their journey. Their yeah. Journey through education. Education. Right. And train, uh, tra- treating people. Right. I agree. And that's why I do it. Absolutely. So you developed the pillars of successful stroke. Right. So there's so many things out there um, that, you know, some of the things we talked about, clinical research and some other things. I thought, I want to put um, my view of a survivor view of stroke recovery into sort of a, an organized document so mm-hmm. that I could speak from it. So I was, for example, I was up at the World Stroke Congress a few months ago. There were 2,700 people there, of which about a dozen were survivors. But I guess the room had a couple hundred people in it that I spoke in because there were sessions going on all over the place. And so I've developed, at that time, actually I had nine pillars of stroke um, recovery, but now, you know, and me, and talking to people up at uh, at the World Stroke Congress and some other people after, um, I've expanded it to 12, um, 12 pillars. And mm-hmm. it's just a coherent way of kind of explaining what I see is the way you go from, from the hospital bed to having a, a new lifestyle that is constructive and uh, though maybe different than what you had before, constructive, happy lifestyle. We have to learn to, number one, accept ourselves. And, and many, I know, don't accept themselves. I didn't in the very beginning. Eventually, I learned that okay. life changed, right. and that's okay. Keep moving, but embrace the new you, because you may find out that the new you is pretty awesome. Well, no, I think it is. Because, yeah. look, I never would have even thought about trying to do this stuff in stroke mm-hmm. in a million years had I not gone through what I've gone through. And in writing the book, you know, I interviewed um, stroke professionals, uh, doctors and things. And they're the ones who opened my eyes to the fact that it was underserved. Because, frankly, I didn't realize it was underserved because I was being served. So I didn't know that it was underserved, that there aren't that many stroke centers and all the rest of it. Right. So, but one doctor particularly down here, he said, Bob, he looked at me, he said, he spent an hour and a half with me, and he said, you have to understand, Bob, stroke is just amazingly underserved. And then when he started, then I wrote all this stuff down, and I started research. I said, whoa, this is unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. So this is something that I've talked about with other people, is that, number one, you can't find resources. But if you find the resources – they're still not all in one place or there's not enough of them in one place. And you're scrambling to find things. Some of the new things that I'm trying, I just happened to find out but from somebody from word of mouth and didn't even know it could be used for stroke until, you know, I started reading up on it and talking to people. And, you know, there's, I mean, yes, we have some great resources, you know, the National Stroke Association, you know, things like that. We're pretty underserved. Even physicians don't really understand which one of us is different. The thing that makes stroke so difficult, and I'm sure you know this, is that every stroke is different, 
Every person is different. And so there's no really good template for stroke. Right. There are other diseases that there is kind of a template. I mean, you've mm-hmm. got what you got and you go through a process. Right. And it's obviously some worse than others and things like that. But stroke is all over the place, mm-hmm. which makes it difficult to research, by the way. You have a stroke on the right side. Your left side's affected or, or vice versa. Vice versa, right. Um, okay, well, here I am. Right. My left side was affected, but now it's my left leg and my right arm. Nobody knows why, but my stroke was on the right side. Yeah, but maybe it's because you're because yeah. you're using that other side so much that it's tiring. But. You are also coming up with pillars of successful stroke prevention. I am. I'm working. I have 10 of ten, and I'm working with a doctor. Um, again, to, to make it so when I go to a Rotary Club or something like that and speak, you know, I can present something like this because, see, when you talk about, and you probably know this, you talk about stroke recovery, this 50 people in the room, maybe eight, ten people have stroke someplace in their world that they're pretty familiar with. The other 40 people don't. Everybody is concerned about stroke prevention. Mm-hmm. So um, so I decided, again, no one had ever pulled it together in the manner that I pulled it together. And um, I worked more with this, uh, this, this doctor um, because I know less about prevention than I know about recovery. So I wanted her input um, to make sure that I wasn't making a fool of myself or saying the wrong thing. I don't want to give people the wrong message. I mean, that's what you can possibly do. So we have a soap prevention thing. So we're, um, we have two documents. The second, the prevention document's not been, uh, graphic designer hasn't finished it yet, but uh, the other one is, is done, will be up on our website. Um, but the, the key with the stroke, the pillars, is that um, the people, you know, I, I put these words up, and they're in very simple English. But still, a survivor or their caregiver, and the caregiver is very important, um, they don't really know how to access this stuff. It's similar to one of the pillars, you know, is clinical research. Just how you access it. It's another story, and you alluded to one of the issues that the, that the terminology is so complex. And, you know, it's scary. If you're having a deficit and you're, you're an intelligent lay person, now you get these words. You don't know what the heck they are. You don't want to feel like you don't want to make a fool out of yourself. You don't want to go down a blind alley. You know, it's annoying. And it's false hope for yourself or for your survivor if you're the caregiver. So... Um, so which I'm going to try and make it, you know, I'm very survivor friendly, if you will, because you know, it's uh, that is one of the issues for every survivor and their caregiver partner is understanding what goes on and understanding the terminology. And so many people are embarrassed to say they don't understand, or the doctor is rushing you out the door because they have you know seven or eight minutes. Mm-hmm. To, to to talk to you, you know, it's, it's a tough area. Yes. Yeah. So, um, fortunately, I have very good doctors and um, access to some information or information that I, if I don't understand it, I can ask physicians that I work with and they can 
helped me through it. But not everybody has that. No. Well, and hardly so, anybody, actually, hardly anybody has it. Yeah. So you're fortunate in that. And, yeah. and it's, you know, you recognize it and, you know, you mm-hmm. take advantage of it. Absolutely, I recognize it. I also recognize that I'm technically challenged, so sometimes trying to find things on the Internet or get this app or do this, and sometimes I can't get through that. So if anybody wants to grab a hold of your book, do you have a website or is there a way to? Yeah, well, the book's on the Foundation website. It's called Stroke Victor, How to Go from Stroke Victim to Stroke Victor. It's on Amazon. You know, I sell it individually if people are in this area. For the, for the, for the typical person, it's on Amazon and uh, it's available. Okay. And if anybody wants to find out more about any of the, the things that you're doing, the Pillars of Successful Stroke Recovery or the Prevention. Contact us. Anything. How do they do that? Info at strokerf.org. And RF is Recovery Foundation. So info at strokerf.org. Okay. And just one little last thing that you have been presenting on TED and World Stroke Congress both. And do you think the audience is warming up to more survivors being the driving force to improve the stroke care? I'd like to think so. I think it's an open book. Okay. I think some people are. Think people do when they have it suddenly in their face, their brother, their sister, their God forbid, their child. They become much more uh, sympathetic to it. People who aren't, you know, it's almost a little scary to them. Mm-hmm. Stroke's a scary disease. Um, it's interesting because um, I had my stroke at a younger age, and people would just look at me and say, "No, you didn't." And I'd say, yes, I did. And, um, you know, they think that stroke only happens to older people. Well, that's uh, an issue. Yeah. It's grandma and grandpa disease. Right. But and 10% it's not. of strokes are under 50. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. 10% doesn't sound like such a big number until you realize that's between 80 and 90,000 Americans mm-hmm. a year under 50 have strokes. That's yes. Yes. So once I had my stroke, I started looking at all of this. And um, even people under the age of 40 and 30, um, this was a large children. Um, pediatric, and, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They had a session on pediatric stroke at the World Stroke Congress, actually. Ah. So, I mean, in the, in the scientific world, and that's what, you know, the mm-hmm. Congress had mostly scientists. They're, they realize it, but, you know, it's still still two-thirds are over 65. So, well, I, I still feel that stroke is a taboo subject. People don't really want to talk about it right. at right. all. Right. Uh, there are people who are a little uncomfortable with just a disabled person, whether yeah. it's stroke or it's TBI or it's uh, Parkinson's. It doesn't matter, any of these diseases. There are people who, they're not used to that kind of thing. They're not used to being in a clinical setting. It's nothing against them. They just, they're yeah. unfamiliar. So unfamiliar is, you know, changes, changes the way it is. Before we close out, 
Are there any other, any words of wisdom that you have for people? Well, the biggest words of wisdom is that your stroke is a lifetime journey of recovery, recovery journey. Don't believe anybody who says you only have a year or six months or whatever someone says there. Have a smile on your face, just like the two of us have, and um, kind of make it happen. Uh, try and get yourself, um, if you're a little bit overweight, get down so you don't have a second risk having a second stroke. Physical fitness is very important because um, because in stroke, you tend to get stiff. You have tone kicks in. And I'm always walking better when I walk out of the fitness center than I was when I walk into the fitness center. Those are, we have to end at a certain point here. Everybody's going to turn off. Bob Mandel, I want to say thank you for being here with us. If anybody's interested in the book, uh, Stroke Victor, please reach out and get that on Amazon. And keep positive, guys. That's what we're, but we've keep both positive. been saying and learn, and, learn to, yeah. and learn to embrace that new you. I hope you all have enjoyed this podcast, the Hand in Hand Show, a part of Stroke Focus. This is Tam, and as always, I'll see you on the radio next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Hand in Hand Show. We hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to keep the discussion going, please join Stroke Focus, the social media website dedicated to stroke survivors and caregivers. The website address is https colon backslash backslash www.strokefocus.net. Stroke Focus is S-T-R-O-K-E-F-O-C-U-S. Stroke Focus is a part of Wohala, which in Mandarin means I have survived. If you wish to be a part of the show or would like to be interviewed as part of the show, please contact us at contact at strokefocus.net.